Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Kings 17, and we'll be in verses 2 through 8. What we're going to be in the next few weeks is a great study. Actually, we started last time. A great study on the character of Elijah. James chapter 5, and we read it last week as we began in 1 Kings 17 verse 1, moving in from chapter 16. James 5 says that Elijah was just like us, a man of like passion. He, was, he, had, he, he shared the same emotions and he had experiences just like we do. So when you read that in the New Testament, what, what it's teaching you is that he could be happy and enjoy friends He could be sad, he could be angry, he could be depressed. He could be anything that runs the gamut of human emotions. And we'll see that as we go along in uh, the study of Elijah. We've been studying the kings. uh, And we're focused now on the northern kingdom in this portion of 1 Kings. Then we'll float because the southern king was living so long. (laughs) There were northern kingdom kings who were uh, just coming right through like this. So that's why it is the way it is. Elijah, the comes from Gilead. He, you know, he's the Tishba. He, he comes from that. He's a country boy, if you want to call it that. He dressed like John the Baptist dressed. You know, he, he wore the leather stuff and he, he just was a, a rough kind of a guy. We've been noting in, the, in, in 1 Kings how in the northern kingdom, one king after another, the Bible says, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil. Omri, Ahab's Father, it said, he did more evil than any of them. And then Ahab comes along, and the Bible says he did more evil than anybody, including his father. So evil has reached its pinnacle in the northern kingdom. Now these are, the, the, these are 10 of the 12 tribes. These are people who are under the covenant of Abraham. What does God do? We've noted already up to this point the grievous sins that the people were committing on a wholesale level. Not just that, they were being led and encouraged by Ahab and Jezebel, his queen, his wife, who was a, a foreigner, a foreign woman who was actually a priestess of of Baal, her father being a priest of Baal. And this was the kind of thing. We also see in the greater context that she hates Yahweh and she hates the prophets of Yahweh. So much so that she is in a project. She's introduced a project and she's funding it and empowering it a project to kill all the prophets of Yahweh. We'll see more of that as we go along. 
But this is something just to sort of think about what is beginning to happen and what is already going on in the northern kingdom. So here in verse 1, you may recall, Elijah comes and uh, simply said to him, there's not going to be any rain or dew these years except by my word. So, and James chapter 5 backs it up, there was no rain, no dew for three and a half years. Now, I want you to think about that. None, none, no rain and no dew in the land for three and a half years. So the water is, is being withheld completely from the northern kingdom. It's, they're, you know, they're having to slaughter their herds. They're, they're having to do um, very serious things to try to keep things in balance as much as they could because there was no water. They were carefully finding out where there was some, still some water and, and uh, doing what they had to do to, to grab it, to take it over. Well, this is, the kind of, this is the kind of world that exists when we come to chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 2 in chapter 17. The drought is already in full swing. And Ahab takes Elijah as his enemy. Later on when they meet, and we'll see that in a few weeks, when they meet again and he sees Elijah, Ahab says, you are the troubler of Israel. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Isn't it interesting? You preach the word of God. You call people to obedience and salvation, knowing that God takes care of his own. Warning of judgment if you turn against God. And this is what happens with Elijah. And it is because of sin. It is because of Ahab and Jezebel and all that they are promoting that the trouble has come upon Israel. But the preacher who is trying to call them back to where they need to be is the one who's troubling Israel. I read in week, what is this? It would have been week before last. A news article about the World Economic Forum, I think that's what it's called. The guys who control all of our money anyway. They were meeting in Europe, European Union. A lot of leaders didn't go. Our president didn't go. But the ones who were there, they set policy. And somehow this policy makes its way into the legislative halls of at least the Western world. And this woman was talking about how, I forget her name. Uh, she was talking about how she was some kind of leader in the World Economic Forum. And they were pushing European parliaments to pass this extensive so-called hate speech law. Now, you know where that is headed, right? And she said to the person interviewing her, it won't be too much longer until this same law will become law in the United States. 
Now what that would do is, according to the way it's written and reads, what I'm doing right here would put me in prison. And your coming to listen to it would put you in prison. And if you repeated it, I mean, I could just stand up and read the Bible. And it could be declared a hate speech. So where this is headed is, what are the Bible-believing preachers doing? We're, 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 we're telling them the truth and exposing them to the light. And we're praying and begging and proclaiming that God would bring them into the light. They would have salvation. That they would come out of the life that will surely send them to hell and bring them into a life that gives them eternal life. How is that hating people? You love them so much that you come to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share with them the Bible that no one else wants to share with them, that can unlock the soul and enlighten the mind and can lift a spirit out of hell and all the way up into heaven. The wonderful, blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. The eternal, blessed word of God. This is what Elijah is doing. To an utterly wicked nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. In the presence of the worst of them all, Ahab. Whose queen wants to kill Elijah. We'll see that in a couple of weeks, three weeks maybe. And he wants to call Elijah the troubler of Israel. Now, we know that Elijah is headed for a great victory on Mount Carmel. This is where he will, in the name of Yahweh, he will confront the hundreds of prophets of Baal. And just him against all of them. And the fire from heaven falls and destroys, destroys the works, the so-called works. It's, it comes down and, and laps up the sacrifice that he makes for Yahweh. But it doesn't work for them. And they cut themselves and they carry on. And that's where Elijah says, you need to pray a little louder. Baal might be out in the bathroom somewhere and he can't hear you. So he has this great victory. This is where he's headed. Understand this. We, we know this already, but that helps us to understand what happens from here to there. Now, this is a tremendous victory at Carmel. There's, it's, it's one of the greatest spiritual victories in all of the Old Testament. Elijah, the prophets of Baal. He comes from, he just shows up from the country. Now this is stressful. He has to go, he goes from Gilead to, to the area of Samaria. And he stands in the presence of the most evil king in the history of the northern kingdom. And proclaims to him the word of God, the judgment of God. The evil of Ahab and his reign of the people, his wife and what she's doing, Jezebel. This was something that was 
Very difficult. It was a long, it was a long ride. It was physically demanding. And then standing in front of Ahab to preach against his way and to give him warning about judgment was emotionally and spiritually taxing. And he, it's going to be something that's going to drain him completely just to stand and proclaim the word of God and tell him it's not going to rain and dew will not come for these years until I say it will. He goes off and leaves it. And then the drought sets in. So Ahab's hatred is toward the man of God. All he had to do is make things right. Nope, wouldn't do that though. He wants to destroy the messenger. It's, this whole story of Elijah is a, is a tremendous uh, adventure of, of a tough guy, the, the prophet, but who is absolutely human. And his emotions are shown. He's just laid bare before us emotionally as a man as we study him. The, the Jews considered him the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. So, in this part of Elijah's life, tonight let's learn a lesson from a drying brook. First of all, the prudence, the wisdom, the insight, the prudence of the servant of God. And the word of Yahweh came to him saying, all right, now this follows verse one. Well, what's he going to do after he has stood before Ahab and declared to him the evil of his throne, of his reign, and the evil of the kingdom, and the siege of hell that has come upon the northern kingdom of Israel, and the great danger that Ahab himself is bringing the people into. Now what do you do? What am I going to do now? What's the next step? My daddy gave me some good advice a long time ago. And it has served me well. I may have breached it a couple of times when I shouldn't have. But mainly I've always tried to follow his advice. And it was this. When you don't know what to do. You'd better not do anything at all. The servant of God serves God. Now you can look at the stories in the Bible. Abraham's story with Hagar. Uh, the handmaid. And, and you can go from and, and what Peter does. In the, I mean, when somebody just rushes out and tries to do that, oh, I think this is a good idea. Well, you better not do it. Until you get the unction from God. Until you get the compelling from God that all of the other options are just not good options and this is the way to go. So Elijah doesn't know what to do. It's okay. He's the servant of Yahweh. So Yahweh has not forsaken him and has not left him alone. Yahweh speaks to him. He enlightens Elijah as what he is to do next. Elijah had the wherewithal to just 
pray. The first and foremost thing for us as servants of God is to be available to God. The next thing is to pray. I used to have a preacher friend. He's, he's dead now. He, he was a funny guy and he used to have this saying, we're going we're gonna to do something even if it's wrong. And he probably was right. And I used to laugh at that when I, back in the day, but the more I've reflected on that through the years, that's, that's not so funny, you know? We're going to do something even if it's wrong. <laughs> well, okay. I can tell you from a couple of experiences over nearly 50 years, it just doesn't work out well. Don't move in your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. The, you see, what the first thing we have to learn is that the heart of a man is evil. If we just leave that sucker alone, he's not going to do nothing but suggest evil things. Things that may not at the time look so evil, but they turn out to be bad. First of all, availability to God. Secondly, prayer. And the third thing is to wait on God. God is always up to something. God is not inept. He's not paralyzed. He's, he's not so old that he's entering into some, sign of, some kind of eternal spiritual, I don't know, Alzheimer's or something. He's not that way. He's active. And he's true. He knows where we are. When he's working to work through your life and my life, we have to understand that there are a thousand other things that he's going to work on so that what he's about to send you to do will fall right into place. You got to let God go out there and settle all the issues and clear the path. And then he'll guide us. This is the way it is with Elijah. He had the prudence... To wait on God. So what's the next thing? He, he makes his speech before Ahab. He rides off. Goes somewhere. Wonders what he's going to have to do next. You don't have to wonder about that. If you're on your knees before God. And you are seeking to serve God honestly. And obediently. The Lord knows how to get our attention. And he knows how to keep us from doing what we ought not to do. That's the most important. That I will say this to give you a little tip. It's not always that way with Elijah. He, he's doing, he does it okay now, but he slips up. We'll see. But he waits on the Lord. He's made himself available. He has declared the will of God before the king, the evil king. What does he do next? He prays and he waits on God. What happens? And the word of Yahweh came to him saying. Next thing is patience. This is really difficult to do. We all have this innate desire to appear to be successful in the eyes of the world. Now, the, 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 the standard of measure in the world, you, you can write this down because I can tell you from experience 
over a long period of time. In the work of the Lord on planet Earth, the standard of measure for success in the world is not the way God measures it. It's a man-made measure. In the modern era, in the United States, in general, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and specifically, one great standard of measure is numbers. You got to get them. You got to out-baptize the other ones. So what do you do? I know. I've been there. Listen, I have, I spent nearly 11 years repenting of my first 15 years. You buy lots of pizzas. You bring in an emotional evangelist who through an emotional appeal will sooner or later make everybody feel unsaved again so that he can appear successful. altar full of crying people. Then you, last night of the revival, you stand them up there and you march them through. You just march them through that baptismal pool. And some of them have been, as one preacher said, been baptized so many times and knows every fish in the sea by name. You just baptize them. There are always people who have for some reason been misled or don't understand the doctrine of salvation and that the power of salvation is in the hand of God and not in the hand of man. It's in the mind of God. It's not in the mind of man. It is all God and none of me. I don't save myself and I can't keep myself saved. But pastors are like SEC football coaches. They got to have a winning record every year. We got to baptize X number of people. Now, how can you decide that? You can't. <laughs> Take it from me. I know. I've been there. You get your church council together. You get all your ministries together. We're going to work for God. We're not going to stop until we baptize. How many did we baptized last year, brother? 46. We're not going to stop till we baptize 50 this year. Well, how, are you going to, how can you know? You can't know that. Why stop at 50? The, the measure of success in the world is never God's standard of measure. I like the old preacher. When his preacher friend asked him after revival, he said, Brother, how many additions did you have? He said, Additions? Brother, we had blessed subtractions. It's not, a, it's not a contest. I'll tell you this. Preachers, especially young preachers, just feel like it's all up to them. If I don't go see them, they ain't going to get saved. If we don't do it while I'm here, there ain't nobody ever going to come in after me that's better than me. So let's go find those 
hard ones. You know, and you hear about people, somebody, some, some hard nut comes forward and makes a profession of faith. And I thank God for it if it's genuine. I, the Lord judges people, not me. And people say, boy, he was a tough one. Man, I'll tell you what. Heaven is going to be surprised that this old boy got saved. You know, who, you know, what that song I can't stand. It made news in heaven when I got saved. Like it was a, oh, come on. The angels rejoice. I don't d- discount that at all. They marvel at gr- the grace of God that any of us would get saved. So then we understand, Elijah understood this. Success is not measured by the world. Ahab had all the numbers. Man, he could call up a party. He could, he could, he could invite people to some kind of weird worship service and the whole nation would show up. Elijah shows up in goat skins, probably needing a bath. Proclaims the word of God. Nobody comes. Nobody comes. God is not ignorant of what's happening. So, Elijah says, what do I do next? Well, if you don't know what to do, you better not do anything. Just wait on the Lord. So here we go. Let's look at the next thing. Patience. Go from here. Don't just stay here. Go from here. Turn eastward and hide. Let me tell you what. I can obey that command with the best of them. (laughs) Get out of here and go hide. Okay, I will. Hide in the brook of Karit, which is before Jordan. Now, what did I just say a few minutes ago? The water's drying up. There's no rain. There's no dew. Of all places, he sends Elijah to a brook that's drying up and told him to hide there. Karit. Hebrew word means separation. There are times... When in service to God, you need to go hide yourself and separate yourself from everybody but God. And God always does the right thing, even though it may seem unusual. You wait on God. Well, I thank God. I, I have failed him many times, but I have to. He has never failed me. Never. I don't know how I got this far. I, I won't go any further than that, but it's just amazing. It's amazing what God has done. Learn how to hide and separate yourself when the direction is not completely clear other than the, that the word of the Lord has come and has simply opened only this one direction. And the direction is out in the middle of the woods Away from everybody, 
hiding at a place of separation, the water of which inches downward every day. That brook is drying up every day. How do you think he felt? It's an interesting thought. Get up in the morning, be kind of thirsty, want to brush your teeth, whatever. Hey, a lot less water there today than it was yesterday. Next is placement. Where's God going to bless what I do? There. Think about that word. And it shall be from the brook you shall drink. Okay, now there's a promise of God. Okay, what am I supposed to think? Man, that thing was kind of out of its banks when I first got here. And every morning, every day, it just keeps going down. And this brook, the, the water level keeps going down and down and down. And this thing is, is loose. This, we're not having rain anywhere. You'll drink from this brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, a raven is an unclean bird. Unclean bird. For a, an Israelite, of course, who honors the law. Unclean bird, raven. Twice a day. Let's look at it. He went and did as the word of Yahweh. And he went and resided in the brook of Kerit, which is before the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And from the brook did he drink. Now there's always less water than there was the day before. But why should he worry about that? Because Yahweh has said, you'll drink from this brook. I've often wondered where the ravens went to get the meat and the bread. Now this is the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. I think they stole it off of Ahab's table. <laughs> Best meat in the land. Best bread in the land. And flew with a, it doesn't say ravens. It's, well it's not a duality. It's a plural. So they're, must have been more than three. I don't know how many ravens. Maybe they just kept coming until I just laid back and said, Man, Lord, I see it. I can't take more. Brought him meat and bread there. There. Most of us would get up every morning and we would look at the brook and we would say, I'm losing water. Lord, I think it's time for me. I'm just going to move on a little bit somewhere else and find a little more water. Can't do it. Well, okay, so the ravens show up and there's no Elijah. This is where he's going to get fed. There. Of all places. He had just come from the area of Samaria. Filled with its activities and its boisterous living and all that stuff where people seem to be happy all the time. Now he's out there in the middle of the woods and ravens are bringing him meat and bread, not once a day, twice a day. 
Two big meals every day. He doesn't have to do a thing. Because this is what the command of Yahweh is. Hide yourself. I'll take care of you even there. I'll take care of you. You will drink of the brook of Kerit. Until it's dried up. From the brook did he drink. Morning meal, evening meal, two meals a day, big meals. I just, you know, I just have this picture. God doesn't halfway do things. I just have this picture of just all kinds of ravens coming around with their mouths full of some of the best food in the land. And Elijah has a big old smile on his face. He stretches out his cloth on the ground and has a picnic for himself. He's having a big time. Because Yahweh has cared for him. Because he's there. When you don't know what to do, you better not do anything at all. And if the Lord takes you away from the presence of this tremendous king and puts you in the middle of nowhere, that's where you need to be. That is where I'll bless you. I will provide for you there. Not anywhere else, but there. That's a tremendous lesson to learn. And it can be so sad in the life of a servant of the Lord. If he tries to discover for himself, apart from the Lord, a place of service for the Lord. How David would have failed if he had tried to take on the Advice of the king's counselors and soldiers and wear Saul's armor. It wouldn't fit. That's not how you, he couldn't have had the freedom of movement that he needed to do what he had been equipped to do by the Lord. All of us, God is building us into something for his glory. And the, the greatest thing is that we should, have, we should have joy. And it's, it's what gives us joy in serving the Lord. And just be content, you know, bloom where you're planted. Paul said, I have learned how to abound and I have learned how to be abased and in whatsoever state I am in, therewith, therewith to be content. Contentment and peace. This is the thing. Forget about the, forget about the human standard of measurement and, and the world standard of success. Be obedient to Yahweh. That's our job. Be available, pray, and wait on him. That's what Elijah is doing here. And in that, the Lord tremendously not only provided for him, but he protected him. And it came to pass after a time... That the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Well, what's Elijah going to do? He's going to wait on the Lord. Because it was just then, not yesterday when he could get a little spoonful of water here and there. It wasn't yesterday when it was almost dried up. It was today when it's completely dried up. Then... The word of Yahweh 
came to him saying, let me give you a preview of the next time. He's going to go and live with a widow at Zedaphat. Now there's a stark contrast to be made between receiving all the food that you want twice a day from ravens and water that just rushes by your side, albeit diminishing daily. At least it was there you could see it. Until finally it didn't come anywhere. And then, okay, so he sends you from a place like this, from Kerit to Zedefit. You go from a drying brook to an empty barrel. An empty jar of oil. An empty barrel of flour. Elijah could not have understood or appreciated the situation living with the widow at Zedaphat. Knowing that somehow she would struggle to open up the barrel of flour, which was empty because she took it all yesterday, but today would reach in and find just enough for their cakes for the day and enough oil from what had been yesterday an empty jar of oil. Zerifit. You can't, you can't survive Zerifit if you don't understand Kerit. Kerit. Zerifit. Now you're emboldened to say, you know what? Yahweh can do anything. I don't care if there are hundreds of prophets of Baal up there. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to carry a sword with me when I go. You have to go through Kerit and Zerifit to understand the strength and the joy of victory on Mount Carmel. We're going to stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.